it's just kind of a prop and we don't really get the impact of it. But when you look at that in the RN in context of the book, I actually think it's a really fucking cool symbol to get tattooed on you because it's it's like the um, the signifier that you are the uh, architect of the story. Right. That's what it kind of becomes for Bastion when he enters the world. And so I like the idea of like, you know, something on your body that says, like, I am the architect of my own story kind of thing. Right. I, I don't know. I like that. Or sort even of. even viewing it just from an artist standpoint, like I create story and yeah, like exactly. that's important mm-hmm. to me and having that be represented. I am a way. part of the never ending story. Right. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll get one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get him. We'll get that and then we'll get the inkling. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 192 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Wolfgang Peterson's 1984 film, The Neverending Story. Turn around. <laughs> Look at what you see. <laughs> did, it, did it come back to you? In a oh, yeah, wave man. Of uh, what a song. What a song. I mean, I, honestly, very, very clever of them to pick something so catchy. I mean... Uh, so many kids in, in the 80s had to have been singing that oh yeah just over and over again so uh, from what i from what i could find it actually didn't do super well when it first released but when yeah. when the film came out on like home video is when like it, yeah. it took off even like way more and like i think it charted at that point like the song got on the charts and stuff wow yeah and i mean that makes sense and it's funny because uh one of one of my observations was like it's weird to watch this movie in hd yeah it feels almost wrong yep because it, the way I saw it originally was on a VHS copy, you know, the grainy, probably 4-3 ratio instead of that widescreen. And uh, it, it looks just completely different when you're seeing everything in crystal clear HD, you know. Uh, surprisingly, some of the stuff holds up really well. I saw some I saw some like stills that people had taken from the film. And yeah. like Falcor still well, looks it's all pretty pr- it's good. It's almost all practical, yeah. right? Like it's it's so of, it, it's practical stuff is going to by definition hold up more. Yeah. And and yeah, I agree. Falcor looks good. Like I mean, you have your matte paintings and stuff as as the background yeah. sometimes. Which but even a, that holds that holds up okay. It's in and, a way, and it's, yeah. And, and and honestly, it's the HD is what allows you to see that it's a painting because it's so clear and crisp. But like in that lower quality, you can't tell that it's a painting sometimes. Like that. So so some stuff works better. Some stuff doesn't work as well. You know, we can get into the effects and stuff. I think when stuff is still, it looks better. When it moves, is often what becomes difficult and that's the you know that's the case where like computer animation does so well is you can have a dragon jumping around on screen like interacting with things and moving in a way that the falcor just can't when he's you know fairly static even even like just like cg augmenting practical effects that they can do now to hide the imperfections and that kind of thing can be can be game-changing but uh yeah so I, i think that i kind of underestimated the like impact of this film i kind of i think in my memory i was like yeah i liked it it's like you know it's fun but it's like a pretty massive achievement for the time period to pull something like this off 
And uh, it was, I was reading that it was like the largest German production ever at the time. Uh, wow. Wolfgang Peterson, this is his first English language film, even though there is a German version of it. Um, and a, most of the crew is German, and even some of the actors are German. So it's really interesting. How much did you pick up on the dubbing that was going on? Because there was a bit of it. Was there really? No, I, I didn't. I didn't catch it. I, you know, and it, but I, I sort of attributed some stuff to some weird... Um audio issues because i was having a problem where at the beginning where if i rewound on my digital version like sometimes the sound would stutter would start stuttering and then it would it would like fix itself oh, anyway I, I, it was a, a rental on youtube yeah. and i don't know if it was some problem with the coding or what could but, just be like so gas I, streaming so i wasn't like being very critical of anything not quite lining up so i probably missed that yeah a lot of the like um i think rock biter like was what you mm. the, the lips and and you know you can chalk some of this up to well that one i completely would have missed because i i assumed that was just a limitation of the way the lips were able to move and and all the puppets for that in that sense i thought the mouths didn't line up with their speech pretty frequently but i assumed that was more of a practical reason but it's yeah. interesting to think that maybe it was more of a dubbing issue yeah, I think, you know, maybe a little bit of both, but we're, I mean, we're yeah. talking about the puppets a little bit now. So I think it's cool to know, like 15 people were used to operate Falcor. They, were, they had to do it in different sections. So anytime you notice like his entire body's never really seen on screen, it's like his front section, his middle section, something like that. And and uh, just I watched a lot of behind the scenes stuff and I was really blown away with just like how technical everything had to be with in terms of like operating it because it's this massive like marvel of engineering that they yeah. put together. I, I was, uh, I heard that the same person who crafted E.T., like the puppet and animatronics for E.T., did a lot of the work oh, on this film that. as well. You know, before we get into all the specifics, I just kind of want to, like, give general thoughts about, yeah. you know, my reaction to watching it and my kind of experience. Um, this was a wild nostalgia ride. Um it, there was so much of this movie I had forgotten, but came back in watching it. And then there's also a lot that I just didn't remember at all and was able to sort of experience for the first time. Um, and in some ways, I felt a little bit like Bastion on the back of Falcor, um, you know, like just having a joyful experience uh, reliving my youth um, and, and, and the look of everything. It's, it's so interesting to think of this being a contemporary movie set in the 80s. And showing somewhat what life looked like at the time, um, even though it was, you know, German production. But still, like, it, it, it brought back my childhood to me. Um, and, you know, it, we see so many movies today trying to recapture that look of, like, what it looked like in the 80s. But it's cool to see the authentic, uh, like, that kitchen when when the, he's in the, that, you know, with his father. A lot of that was bringing back waves of nostalgia for me. So, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff there, but um, there's also some stuff that doesn't hold up super well. Um, you know, some of the effects, as much as they're like an incredible achievement, there's just limitations for what they can actually do. And so much of it, I think, relies on the the, chil the children who are watching it, because that's mainly who the audience is, to suspend disbelief and like fill in the blanks, like fill in the movements that you can't, you don't actually see on camera and go like, and, and imagine what's actually happening between scenes, things like that. And um, if the more you're willing to do the, all that work for the movie, the more you're going to enjoy it. And as a kid, I was totally willing, you know, to, to imagine this Falcor like flying through the sky and being sinewy and, and moving gracefully and like all this stuff that like watching 
the movie it doesn't really do mm-hmm. <laughs> but in my mind it did in my memory it did yeah i think i did a like a really great job of putting myself in the shoes of like a of like a child viewing this movie because i think yeah. you kind of have to if you try to engage with it as an adult and want to have like a really critical eye you could tear it apart but i don't yeah. think that's what the movie's really there for and there's so much magic i think there for for a young kid in this film and and then what it means like what stories mean and imagination can mean and what the overall yeah. story we talked about it in the book episode as well but what the overall story is trying to engage with that audience and like i can remember what it was like when i realized like the story was engaging with bastion and then bastion you know that, that at the same time engaging with us who was viewing this movie so like yeah. it's got a lot of magic there in- was that moment where he, they said there are people experiencing this right now and they were careful not to say reading they, they were saying like viewing or interacting or something i think the empress says and it, it welcomed us in as the viewers into the story in the same way that the book did very cool um yeah and that makes me think of like part of the biggest joy of this movie and i got to relive it a little bit was seeing the experience of reading fantasy and losing yourself in a book and feeling like it's real to you and going on that adventure is captured so perfectly in this movie and like so like i identified with bastion because i read tons of fantasy at his age and, and and um he was around the age when i was watching it a little later that i was at the time and i just felt so strongly like yeah that's what it's like this movie gets it when when you just read a fantasy novel and just feel like you're in another world going on these grand adventures yeah uh it this world is like very inventive it really does feel like a filmmaker who's trying to do something like what george lucas did with star wars like it feels like they were like really big really interesting sets like i thought a lot of like even there's the attic set the set where he's in the attic the first time he walked in i was i was like smiling i was like this is so cool what a cool environment to read probably the the most unbelievable set yeah (laughs) (laughs) even even with all the fantasy uh just the idea that that's a school's attic attic. like haunted (laughs) looking yeah ancient (laughs) attic such yeah but i loved it it was you know and and it's fine you know like go with it and a lot of the sets overall like the the swamp of sorrow or Oh yeah, sadness, swamp of sadness. Is, swamp of sadness is yeah. uh, incredible. I think swamp of sorrow might be like a magic card or something. There's some reason we keep saying that. I don't know, D and D maybe. Yeah, so, yeah, something like that. Anyway, that set is incredible, and I was you know learning more about that in the behind the scenes is just like that's all obviously on a stage. They built all that out with those massive trees and actually had muck and the way that the horse was actually like going into, which we'll get, we'll, there's a lot to talk about with that because there's sort of this this urban oh, legend. Yeah. That, I, w- that, I have a lot of questions about that scene. We'll get to that. Um, so yeah, I want to do want to touch on the look of the film a little bit just in general. And especially like, the moment they saw the ivory tower for the first time, I was like, this is the cover of a fantasy novel. This is like a poster that they have put on screen yeah and maybe it was some sort of matte painting or something but like it looked incredible and it captured a very specific time in fantasy and the look of certain things and it evoked that in such a cool way and then i just also want to compliment the movie on being different like this is very clearly not an american production and you can feel that the perspective is different it's just not the way american filmmakers were making films and there was there were decisions that were made that don't feel like they align necessarily with like American culture at the time. And it just seemed like it had different considerations and different things it was trying to do. Um, and a lot of that is cultural, I think, and some of it comes from the source material. And because of that, it feels like a really unique film that 
stands out when I look back at a lot of American 80s films. Yeah. You know, something interesting, too, is that this movie, you know, the German cut of this movie that was released in Germany was massive. Like it was like one of the biggest movies they've ever had at the time. And uh, the way that you were talking about some of the things that were maybe changed for the American version. And um, there's a lot of that like synthiness that's in that's in this. And that wasn't in the German version. So it's interesting. interesting. I mean, I mean, there may be like to see. I would love to see if, if, if this exists. People let me know. I assume it does. And maybe we could watch it as a bonus or something, but like a the the German cut mm-hmm. with the German language, but with like American subtitles, so that I can follow what's being said or English awesome, subtitles. Yeah. That would be really cool to watch because I, I would be really curious to see how it's different and how it. I mean, like my suspicion is it might be better, but I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> so the uh, I think there was some synthiness like built into the score, but specifically yeah. like you know the never ending story song. That's not that's not that's right. American uh, added and that makes sense. A lot of it that kind of like stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I like what you said about sort of this like different perspective from a different culture viewing things yeah. and, and, and like. Germany has its own film history to pull from right and like the way that like you can see sort of like in sequence along along their history in the same way that we look at American cinema history is is I don't know fascinating to think about especially because like I've talked about it many times but German expressionism and and a lot of like the darker elements of cinema that like come came from Germany and what we can like infer about this movie based on that like some of the darkness that exists like the nothing in this movie which uh, I hold heard Wolfgang Peterson talk about it, and like he says that the that's not actually the nothing that we're seeing because the nothing actually is nothing. It's sort of mm. like the harbinger of of the nothing. You know, the clouds and everything that we're seeing is like the warning signs that it's, it's coming. the outer edges of it. Yeah, right. yeah. that makes sense. Uh, and also, I thought that stuff was incredible looking. The, the different cloud formations and like yeah. colors and stuff. And did I, you find anything about how they I did, did that? Yeah, I did. So okay. they, very cool. It's colored oil into salt water. For, wow. for all of those. So it's not actually clouds. Like they, it wasn't any, yeah. they were re- actually creating these like masses and sort of like flowing, moving clouds in that way and changing the colors yeah. and stuff sometimes. I don't know. Am- amazing stuff. The inventiveness of that is is really, really cool. I wonder if uh, any of those like VFX breakdown shows have ever talked about this movie because I think it would be a good Probably. one to do. Yeah. Let me know if anybody has seen like a corridor crew or, or something like breakdown. Yes. Yeah. You know, send me a link. Yeah. <laughs> And if not, we should suggest it to him. Um, anyway, um, I did want to give a little anecdote. So I, I a friend of mine who uh, I went to Viable Paradise with, uh, Simone Heller. Um, she is an author who has been nominated for Hugo. And she also lives and works in Germany as a translator. Um, she's German. Uh, f- uh, she translates English to German and I think vice versa. Um, and I was talking to her a little bit about this movie, this, this book. Um, we do want to have her on the podcast at some point. We, we almost had her on recently, but it didn't end up working out, but hopefully soon. Um, but she gave me some cool little tidbits and I just wanted to share them with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, so one of them was about the translation in general. Uh, she said, uh, so I brought up the whole thing about the first letter in the book and how I was like, oh, I wonder how they did that. And she kind of like shrug that off like not no no big deal okay um one thing she did mention was uh the name of the dragon in german was like fulcor okay and or something like that i can't say it just right but like when they were translating into english they had to change it to falcor because it sounded like 
fucker, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I wish they'd left it now. <laughs> so they couldn't keep saying it over and over again. Oh, yeah. fucker the dragon. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, which I thought was pretty funny. So, like, little things like that. Um, and, and then just if you remember all those wild fantasy names, um, a lot of that had to be translated because it was, like, they were very German-sounding and I think it had to be shifted to be able to even be pronounced in, in English. Um, so some difficulties there. Um, another thing she she just mentioned is that it is it is massive over there, and um, uh, Mikael Inda is you know very famous. Uh, she grew up reading. How about the movie though? So the, the book is massive. So she grew up reading the book, okay. loved it, but then the the movie was huge. Everybody watched it. She said over there. Um, she said she got teased for uh, people, and she said many young girls were teased about this about having uh, a, a crush on a Treyu. Apparently, he was like a big deal over there. I believe it. Um, which yeah. I could totally see. And then um, she said there is a, uh, a well known German band uh, named Tokotronic who has a hit song called, uh, and th- this is not the German, the, there's a German title, but this is the translation uh, Mikael Inda, uh, You Ruined My Life <laughs> is the name of the song. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Me too. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I just thought it was fun to, to get a little bit of that insight into like, it is genuinely huge over there it is it sounds like it is the biggest fantasy thing in germany wow from, from what she was saying incredible like, it's just it's massive so so uh I, you know i watched the movie first so wolfgang peterson kind of ruined my life yeah uh, and i think we should definitely dig into like history with the material because like we touched on it a little bit but like obviously you said you saw it on a vhs tape it was the same yeah. for me and i think the first time i saw it i was like seven something like yeah. that and the scene that like absolutely horrified me that was absolutely horrifying to me was um the pov so we get like the the wolf being like born or whatever that we're seeing like the wolf mm-hmm. come into reality and then the pov through the woods chasing atreyu was yeah. absolutely terrifying to me and i couldn't i couldn't stand to watch it until i grew up a little bit more and then eventually yeah. was able to watch it i think i would just skip that part and then obviously the <laughs> uh horse scene is like completely traumatic our tax yeah. yeah uh so so real quick before we get to the to the horse scene yeah the that that moment of going through the swamps is interesting because it's it's exactly the thing i was talking about you have to imagine the wolf sort of charging through the swamp because we don't see it all we ever see is its head like we don't ever see like legs moving really um so so it's but as like a young viewer like you have no trouble doing that right um it reminded me of like the scene in evil dead where it's just like a camera going through the woods and making noises and people running through from it right and you know it's the same kind of idea it's like if you don't ever show the monster i guess you don't have to make it but um it works and and at the time i think it works better you know now there's certain expectations but um it's it's it is fun to look back and see what they were able to pull off with little tricks like that Definitely. And like I, like you say, the, the imagination is worse when you're a kid because it just runs yeah. wild and it can be nightmare inducing. Yeah. Let's save the horse talk until we get to it in the plot, okay. I think. So I have a lot of thoughts on that scene. Yeah, that sounds good. Something that I think is uh, definitely necessary to talk about with this film is uh, the, the U.S. cut of it was actually overseen by Steven Spielberg. So he's friends. He was or is friends with Wolfgang Peterson. And when it was going to be released in the US, Steven Spielberg was involved in the editing process. He was involved in like adding sound effects and cutting. I think like something like seven minutes was cut from the film. And he had like a big hand in sort of developing what would be the final cut of this film in the US. Okay, that's what I actually want to see. 
I want to see the seven minutes that were cut from the film. Yeah. So someone, someone let us know. Is that on YouTube? Maybe we can find it. <laughs> so according to Spielberg and, and some of the reports, it's like uh, cultural stuff. Yeah, like like things that yeah. made more sense to American audiences were left in and then things that maybe wouldn't have were cut. So yeah, mm-hmm. like you say, we could have seen a, a different version of this film that's more German. So yeah, let us yeah. know. That'd be, that'd be cool to see. Apparently, as a thank you, the original Auron hangs in Steven Spielberg's office in like a glass case as a thank you from Wolfgang Peterson. Wow. I love that. And and I wanted to comment on the Auron and like how it's a great design. First off, it looks very cool. Um, when I was looking, I was making our, uh, I, was, I was putting together an image for uh, for our YouTube uh, video. Anyway, I was I found, uh, I ended up searching for the Auron and there's tons of people who've gotten this tattooed on themselves. So you see all these really cool tattoos. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, it's it's this very iconic, cool-looking symbol. But I was also thinking about how in the movie, it's just kind of a prop. And we don't really get the impact of it. But when you look at that in the RN in context of the book, I actually think it's a really fucking cool symbol to get tattooed on you. Because it's, it's like the... Um, the signifier that you are the uh, architect of the story, right? That's what it kind of becomes for Bastian when he enters the world. And so I like the idea of like, you know, something on your body that says like, I am the architect of my own story kind of thing. Right. I, I don't know. I like that. Or sort even, of. even viewing it just from an artist standpoint, like I create story and yeah, like exactly. that's important mm-hmm. to me and having that be represented. I am a way. part of the never ending story. Right. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll get one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get him. We'll get that, and then we'll get the inkling. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, d- I don't have any tattoos, but you know, at some point, I you know, I may. So we'll see. Yeah, maybe me I'll too. come up with something. I always thought uh, that I would have so many tattoos as soon as I turned eighteen, and then I, yeah. I'm so glad I didn't get them because they were all bad ideas when I was eighteen. And this is just an aside. I'm going to put it out there so that people can hold me to it. But um, <laughs> uh, I've I've always said that it's if when I publish my first novel, I'll get a tattoo to commemorate it. Hell yeah! I don't know what it'll be, but I'll I'll get something to commemorate it. So. Cool. Hopefully look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay, so let's talk about Wolfgang Peterson a little bit. We did touch on him in Enemy Mine uh, way back when, probably about a year or two ago now. Yeah, um, what is, such a unique vision. Like, the look of his movies is unlike anything else that I can think of, honestly. Like, yeah. maybe, maybe some like Willow or like certain other... I can think of a few other sort of 80s movies that had a lot of puppetry and, and yeah. this kind of, But it, there's something just really unique about his vision and his creatures. And the, his, his attention to detail in these sets is pretty astounding. Yeah. Um, it reminded me a lot of like other, like Dark Crystal, like I mentioned yeah. last episode, and like Labyrinth. That. Labyrinth was another one. That, that's another movie where people will watch it now and be like, that movie sucks. And I'm like, no, you don't understand what it was like seeing it when I was a kid then. Because it's got a lot <laughs> actually, of... I actually think a lot of people like that movie. I, I, you know, I'd be shocked, yeah. I, I do think if somebody hadn't seen it, though, like if you just go watch right. it right now, it's a little, yeah. I don't know, it can be a little hard to click into, I guess. I don't I know. Was, in, 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 sorry, I derail it again, but I was thinking about like children today. If you had a child who was watching, you know, How to Train Your Dragon, like watching some other like Pixar movies and stuff around this this age, you know, eight, nine, ten, and then you were like, "Hey, watch this movie," and you put on Never Ending Story for them. Like, what would their reaction be? First off, it's you'd probably traumatize them. Like we were yeah. all traumatized, so you'd have to go in knowing, you're like, I'm going to traumatize my child now, in the way that I was. <laughs> yeah, sometimes Pixar will go there, but not like this. I I don't think there's anything on the level of Artax, in my opinion. We'll get to it. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the um, opening of Up is like 
pretty I, if they understand what's going on yeah. the opening of up is so dramatic it's different though yeah we'll, we'll get to it but but anyway um and, and they're just like so much about this movie's um it doesn't like handle kids with like in, in with the same sort of care that we see today it's like yeah we're just gonna throw stuff at them that is really dark and really twisted yeah. they'll learn to handle it life's rough yeah they gotta they'll be all right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway. So yeah, Wolfgang Peterson is a German film director, producer, and screenwriter. He was nominated for two Academy Awards for the World War II submarine warfare film Das Boot in 1981. His other films oh, okay, include... Yeah. We, we, we talked about some of this on our Enemy Mind right. episode, but we're just going yeah. over it a little just bit. Retouching, just retouching, yeah. Yeah, because I, I had forgotten a lot of it. So his other films include The NeverEnding Story, 1984, Enemy Mine, 1985. And then mm. he started to, like, once he br- jumped over and started doing American films as well, American produ- produced films, uh, In the Line of Fire in 1993, Outbreak in 1995, which had a big resurgence uh, during the pandemic. Oh, he, that Dustin Hoffman movie? Yes. Yep. Interesting. I, that's Wolfgang Peterson? Yep. Wow, what a train! What a thing! Air to, Force One. A, oh my gosh! Yeah, really? Air Force One was him. The perfect storm. I'm kind of sad he went away from from this fantasy pocket. Like, like I, I, I appreciate and the perfect storm. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good movie. I, I appreciate the idea uh, of broadening your what you can do, but like. Man, did he ever return to doing some zany fantasy projects? So Das Boot is obviously like very grounded in a way that's not like that's, the, the that's Never Ending true. Story. So that was his like first film that was nominated for stuff. And then he did Never Ending Story, which was his first fantasy film, actually. And in the documentary that I watched, uh, he was talking about that. Like he was like, this is my first fantasy film and it's all about imagination. So I really want to dig into the imagination of it. And I should I should treat my myself as a kid right now, just like creating what I what comes to me in, in mm-hmm. that way. Uh, and then, yeah, Enemy Mine is like sci-fi. And then everything yeah. else I think that he's done has, hasn't really ever returned to like genre stuff as much. It's In the Line of Fire, Outbreak, Air Force One in 1997, The Perfect Storm in 2000, Troy in 2004, and then Poseidon in 2006. This is the director of Troy? I did yes. not know that. Yep. Wow. That has one of the coolest fights. I mean, like, say what you will about the rest of the movie, but like Hector and, and Achilles yeah. doing battle is one of it's the coolest awesome. fights ever. Very cool, yeah. Yeah, so he's done a lot that you're familiar with. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked. I didn't realize I had seen so much from him. That's that's pretty astounding. So if you wanted more about like his backstory, I think we do do a good job of of giving some more uh, information in, in Enemy Mine. And I would hate to like rehash all of that. So yeah. we'll just say like, you know, he successfully made the jump from German filmmaking to American filmmaking, you know, whether you think that's a good thing or not. But his movies yeah. became massive. Obviously, as as time went on, he became bigger and bigger. And um, you could probably have a fun experience of seeing how bad my memory is by going back and listening to me probably react in the same way to the information that you just gave me. (laughs) And then I clearly have forgotten it. since. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, there's so many people that we talk about every week. So, yeah. Yeah, So often people like come up and talk to me about an episode that is like two or three years old. And they just listen to it, says so fresh to them, but right. like, I don't remember so much yeah. of what I say on this podcast. Somebody recently want, uh, tried to talk to me about our Memento episode, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh boy. I was like, not only is it a complex narrative, like I don't remember the specific details about <laughs> everything that happens. And then like they were trying to ask me questions about it, and I was like, yeah, yeah. I tried to do my best, but <laughs> it can be tough to, to recall all that. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if you saw anything about this or not, but... One thing I like to do when when I watch these movies is I like to take a screen cap or or take a picture of the moment where it says adapted by a novel or adapted from a novel by and then it gives the the name of the author. Mm-hmm. I did not see that anywhere in this movie. Yeah, 
And I wondered if that that probably had something to do with that lawsuit we talked it about. It did, yeah. He he okay. wanted his name completely removed from the production. Okay, so that's something that that Mikel Enda wanted. He wanted that, yeah. He he okay. said that it was going to happen period. But what's interesting is there is a he does have a very small credit in the end credits. He actually does the they role? did they did Okay, I watched I watched a good bit of it and I didn't yeah. see it, but I didn't I didn't read every name. Yeah, so. I didn't see it either, but I when I was reading about it, they said it was very small. So, you know, it might it's in there somewhere just hidden probably. I mean, that's a shame and like I I I respect that that's something he wanted, but it's a shame that it came to that because so much of this movie is him like it's his story and like sure it was it was adapted and changed but like it's a shame that people will watch this movie and i did and like many many people will watch this movie and think wow wolfgang peterson really came up with an interesting story here and like you know because that's who's credited as a screenwriter um and and that's it you know and it's like now with the proliferation of the internet like a lot of people can look it up easily but like you have to remember like in the 80s if it wasn't in the movie, like you probably just didn't know. So, right. so many people probably did not know this was a book. And uh, to watch this movie and see so much of what you created come to life, and and to feel like um, divorced from that creation in the way that he felt, um, I don't know. It's a shame, I, I, you know. And I respect that it's something he wanted, but it's a shame that it came to that. Yeah. Especially because like the lasting legacy of it is like, you know, and I think we've seen this with Stephen King to go back to the thing that we talk about a lot and the way that he wanted he he hated the Shining adaptation so much. And I think if you ask him nowadays, he's probably gotten over it and been like, you know what, like so much other so many other things have happened. It's a part of your oeuvre at the end of the day. People know that Stephen King is attached to it. I think he's said something to the effect of like he recognizes that it is a good film even if he still maintains that it's a bad adaptation. Right. Which, like, that's fair. If you if you want to say that as the creator, I'll give it to you. It's just, a, it's always, and it seems like it's less frequent nowadays. It seems yeah. like people are more clear on exactly how things are going to happen. But well, uh, there's just a couple of specific scenes that were, like, a bridge too far for Mikael Enda. And yeah. uh, we'll, I, I want to talk about those when we get there. So do you want to jump into the plot? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm really curious to hear what those are. So let's do it. So 10-year-old Bastian Bucks is a shy outcast who lives with his widowed father. One day, on his way to school, Bastian is chased by bullies, but escapes by hiding in a bookstore, annoying the bookseller. Bastian's interest in books leads him to ask about the one Coriander is reading, but the bookseller advises against reading it, saying that it is not a safe story like regular books. With his curiosity piqued, Bastian secretly takes the book titled The Neverending Story, leaving a note promising to return it and hides in the school's attic to read. The book describes the fantasy world of Fantasia, slowly being devoured by a malevolent force called the Nothing. The childlike empress who rules Fantasia has fallen ill, and young warrior Atreyu is tasked to discover a cure, believing that once the empress is well, the Nothing will no longer be a threat. Atreyu is given a medallion called the Orin that can guide and protect him in the quest. As Atreyu sets out, the Nothing summons a vicious and highly intelligent wolf-like creature named Gmork to kill Atreyu. So in our real world... We get a uh, a very Steven uh, Spielberg esque scene of the bullies chasing him and tossing him into a dumpster, which um, is I don't know. I mean, it's it's. I feel like in real life it would be much worse than it is on he- here. Yeah. Like, um, but they are you know, young but, enough to where like maybe they aren't that violent yet. But yeah, it does feel like a very like traditional bullying like PG film. Yeah, scene. but also like, he like comes out with like little bits of like like. Hey hay on his hair like yeah it's it's very anyway um 
yeah, it's 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 a that's such an 80s trope, right? Like these these bullies that are usually like three boys who are just reprehensible, irredeemable, yeah. and they're picking on our main character. <laughs> but yeah, and then he runs and he hides in this bookstore. Uh, you know, we we don't get I don't do we get Coriander's name? I don't think he's named, but this older this older fellow who is is from the book somewhat, but a little different here. He um he's at first a little bit gruff, but like quickly warms to Bastion in a way that yeah. I felt like the book version Actually, yeah. was a lot more grumpy and and uh i don't know i, I kind of prefer the book version of this character yeah. personally it's ambiguous in the in the in the book it feels like he, he doesn't like hint that he's in on it or anything like that so like as we go into the book we don't have that much but here he's like smiling when he runs out with the book and he's like expecting it. and i kind of i kind of liked the performance because he's like all up in his face and he's like telling him about how it's not safe and everything i i, I thought it yeah. was fun and uh sets us on the path well enough but yeah i don't know if no, i No, i mean i think it does work for the adaptation and i see yeah. why they did it you know i just personally like the, the version we got in the book a little better but yeah i totally get why they changed it and i think it, it it makes sense yeah so uh what do you think about our introduction to fantasia which is a change and i actually have some information on why that was a change it's sort of a translation thing uh okay interesting what, what do you mean by a change because we had the three messengers meeting together i guess the scene plays out a little differently so in the english translation of the original novel the mystical land was called fantastica the original german oh. name fantasian translates more accurately as fantasia apparently is something I read well, the, and that's what i was talking about with the with the translation issues you're, you're translating these like created words and you're trying to find a way that naturally translates into english so that that's that's kind of a translation thing that makes sense yeah i was just i thought it was interesting because fantasia obviously for me when i think of fantasia i think of disney's fantasia did i say, wait, wait wait what were we saying last week were we saying fantastica or fantasia it was fantastica yeah last week okay so in the in the movie it's fantasia yes i didn't realize that i guess i in my, it's close enough to where I, right. I assumed it was the same but so they changed it from fantastica to fantasia. now the, it's interesting to change it for a movie into fantasia because uh, Fantasia, like Disney's Fantasia, is so famous, and it existed at the time. And right? it existed, like yeah. Old, it was like from the '40s, film. I think. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, weird and, choice. And it is a weird choice, but it, it, Fantastica doesn't. I, I like Fantasia more than I like Fantastica, but I also have the association for the Disney thing, so I can kind of see it going either way. But interesting choice to change the name. It, it was. It, it seems like an arbitrary decision. I think Fantastica would have worked fine, and you're yeah. keeping it the same. So I don't know why you don't just go with it. But okay. Yeah, <laughs> it happened, but the, uh, yeah, so how about the introduction to the actual world, the yeah. characters that we meet in the first scene? I was happy to see that I did remember the giant uh, uh, bike, because the Rackbiter is rolling up on this, like, steamroller, and everyone's running out of the way, and... I did not remember that, and I was like, damn, he was right, it's like a yeah. fucking motorcycle, rock motorcycle or something. <laughs> yeah. And I liked how freaking huge he was and then like yes. eating the rocks and it's raining down. So cool. Um, just the look of all of the these these beings, the the snail's head is like so weird and, and, and just disturbing, but cool. Like this is the kind of stuff that I was saying, like the attention to detail, the character creation, the monster creation or whatever you want to call it. Props to like costuming and, and set so design good. and everything like that because it looks yeah. amazing and it, it really is create a, a believable fantasy world, you know? Yeah. And, and this scene was like there was definitely a bit of humor in it. You know, you had the, the like sleeping bat who kept, you know, kept falling asleep all the time and uh, the racing snail, which is like really <laughs> it made this sound that was really grody. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> like, it was, like <laughs> slurping along the ground. Like, yeah. Of, 
I wonder how that'll sound on the podcast. Um, anyway, <laughs> it was quite a sound. And uh, yeah, I thought the scene was fun. And, and then uh, the approach to the ivory tower, again, was a moment that I was struck with a uh, great music. And then it looked like a, the cover of a fantasy novel. I was really taken with it. Yeah. Uh, the decision to, to make it have that comedy element, I think, is important for a kid's movie like this yeah. as well. Something that's catering to that, because I think that caters to an even maybe younger demographic when you when you have that and like a slightly older child demographic can enjoy it. And like like we still enjoyed it. So it was yeah, it was it was fun. And the scale of it, like you talked about, it, I think is so I think that was so smart to play with scale in that way with the way that yeah. they use miniatures and the way that you sets and the way that they use. Yeah. All of this other stuff was there's a lot of clever trickery with size, like the sizes between different characters and stuff yeah. throughout the movie that I thought was really cool. And I can't help but think about like fantasy and miniatures and all that kind of stuff. When it, and then leads me to like what would what would be Lord of the Rings eventually and how yeah. how like that's like seamless. Miniature. Which got a shout out in this, you know, in this version a little bit, you know, Lord of the Rings, a Tarzan, which twenty thousand leagues, you know, Edgar Rice yeah. Burroughs we covered and twenty thousand, yeah. So it was, I, don't know, it was, I thought it was cool. Um, one thing I want to I want to mention just before we move on the the Aran when he gets the Aran, the idea of this like story influencer reminded me of a thing in Wheel of Time, which I know you haven't read, but just briefly I want to say for people who have the uh, Taverine or Taverine I, I don't know how you say it because um, I've only ever read it, but um, there's this concept of these people who have the ability to sort of like there's there things are faded in that world but if you're one of these people you have the ability to like change things you have like a special power to alter fate um and i i thought that uh, that th these two ideas seemed linked to me i don't know if there was any influence going on here from robert jordan in, in this book and and um or not but the idea of being able to sort of like change the story as a power and a magic uh in, in like a fantasy book I don't know. I see some like connective tissue here. Yeah, and we talked about how it can become dangerous too, right? When when the the character has too much agency in the story, yeah. and then they can change it entirely, and how that can become kind of stale. But finding that perfect balance, which I think that it sounds yeah. like they they were able to find. Um, well, yeah, I mean, in in Wheel of Time, they're not like gods. You know, it's just it's right. it's like more subtle than that. It's just like their actions have the ability to like break faded things i don't know anyway yeah we can talk about that when we get to wheel of time yeah i'm excited <laughs> i'm very excited one day to read that because that's that's been yeah. on the on my tube yeah a decade ago i've been i was planning on reading it you know so it's, yeah it's, i'm excited we're getting the, the show later this year so stay tuned i cannot wait yeah all right so the next section atreyu's quest directs him to the giant turtle-like advisor morla the ancient one in the swamps of sadness though the Orin protects atreyu his beloved horse artax is lost to the swamp and he continues alone Morla does not have the answers Atreyu seeks, but directs him to the southern oracle 10,000 miles away. Gamork closes in as Atreyu succumbs to exhaustion, trying to escape the swamps, but is narrowly saved by Falcor. Falcor takes him to the home of two gnomes that live near the gates to the southern oracle. Atreyu crosses the first gate, but is perplexed when the second gate, a mirror that shows the viewer's true self, reveals a boy which Bastion recognizes as himself. Atreyu eventually meets the Southern Oracle, who tells him the only way to save the Empress is to find a human child who lives beyond the boundaries of Fantasia to give her a new name. Atreyu and Falcor flee as the nothing consumes the Southern Oracle. Let's talk about Artax. Um, that scene, brutal. And and honestly, way more... Like I talked about how like in the book, Artax talks. 
Yep. Um, and how that changes the scene a little bit, and it's kind of dark how he's able to sort of narrate his own demise. But it's worse when he can't. When it's just this sweet animal who we get this like scene with him at the at the river, like right before this, the stream, like coming over and like snuggling with him and being all cute. And then as a kid, you're watching it and you're like, oh, I love this horse. He's like a dog. He's like a big dog. It's a and fantasy horse too, right? Yeah, it's like he's, he's so smart. He's so cool. And then all of a sudden, oh no, <laughs> he just starts sinking. And then this is clearly a real horse right. that is being submerged mm-hmm. in something. And then you can see what I read as genuine fear in the animal. Uh, at, and that upset me <laughs> yeah um and they they t- they do a lot with it and um i was worried about the horse and i hope that the horse was fine and not scarred by this um you said you have some behind the scenes stuff so i'd be yeah curious so this this is like a really long running urban there's like an urban legend around it that the horse actually died and it was going on during the release of the film and like early on and people just, you know, before the Internet, people would just talk about it. And, it, and they said, you know, I can totally back. see that. You watch this scene and you're like that horse actually died. Yeah. Yeah. You like could believe it. Right. So the way that they achieved there's there's multiple steps. This. The horse didn't die. Spoiler alert. Okay. <laughs> the horse survived. Uh, and there's so there's multiple steps to this and the way that they that I, you know, in the documentary I watched and I read some extra uh, materials as well to, to see like different perspectives on it. But basically. They had three different horses that performed different tasks within within the scene. Um, there was a uh, hydraulic lift in the muck that, that was lower that was lowering the horse down. Uh, they said that in training the horses, they were obviously not super stoked about being submerged. It's, it's something very unnatural for a horse to yeah. want to be submerged in, in something like and that. And I assume they had to like restrain it so it couldn't mm. get lo- and like couldn't get out or swim or something. From what I from what I understand, they they it took seven weeks to teach the horses uh, how to do this, and basically, they would do it incrementally, you know, slowly lower it, and then and then have it stop at a certain point that's like you know maybe a foot or something like that, and then allow the horse to get off, and just teaching the horse that it wasn't it was still safe even if as it submerged, uh, okay. and then they continued to do that multiple times, and like I said, there were different horses to do different portions of it, so they became more used to different sections of it. Um, but in the documentary that I watched, one of the filmmakers, it wasn't, it wasn't Wolfgang Peterson, probably one of the producers or somebody like that did, did, was kind of, uh, happy with how in that final shot where it's like basically up to its neck, how you could see basically genuine fear in the horse and how the acting was great and all this stuff. And I was like, well, I don't know that I love this scene at all. Yeah. It's not called, it's not called acting when an animal is terrified. It's called you terrified an animal. (laughs) They don't know they're acting. (laughs) Well, and he specifically, he was specific. I guess the horse was totally fine being submerged up to that point, but it was with a tray you pulling on the reins and screaming and stuff as well that it sort of like built to something that probably did end up scaring the horse in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to know the horse didn't die, at least. Hopefully it went yeah. on to have a happy life, and, and I guess it was a part of movie history now. So, Artax, actually, after the film, Noah Hathaway, who played uh, Atreyu, was given uh-huh. the horse. And I it was a kind of unclear whether, like, because then there was something that was said about, like, if he was able to get it out of Germany or something like that. There was, like, some paperwork that couldn't, basically gifted to him. And uh-huh. I, I was unclear if he was able to bring it back to the States or whatever ended up happening with the horse. But overall, it sounds like the horse 
didn't like die on set or anything like that. <laughs> okay. So. Well, I'm glad to know that that that, that is uh, the case. That makes me feel a little better about the scene. Um, yeah. So just as a scene, it is brutal, though. And as a kid, it feels like, I don't know, to me, this is more impactful than anything you'll see in a Pixar movie because there is a level of distance we're all aware of when we're watching a uh, animated thing or we're watching right. a cartoon versus watching an actual animal. Um, I mean, so we can liken just, it to the idea of in a book reading of a horse drowning and then seeing yeah. a horse literally drown. And so it's like something animated. Yeah, it's like the idea of something happening. And, and Pixar has plenty of that where it's like just like tons of like mortality stuff for kids yeah. and think ideas for them to think about. But seeing a horse in danger like that is yeah. definitely way more visceral and scarier and seems real. Yeah. And it seems so random and thoughtless. Like it just happens. And I'm glad that they mention it a few times later. He mentions his horse because I thought for a minute, I was like, they're never even going to mention this fucking horse again. And this was, this scene was absolutely brutal. Yeah. I'm glad uh, it does come up it, again later. It fucked me up as a kid. Like I said I in the book episode, <laughs> I said it made me genuinely, I, it's the first time that I can remember uh, confronting my mortality and like mm -hmm. thinking about death in that way. And like, uh, you know, it comes for all of us and, yeah. and all of that. And, and it was, you know, it fucked me up for sure. Yeah. I, I think this is one of the reasons. Uh, there's a few things I think that contributed, but the, there's a reason this wasn't one of the movies that I would go back to a lot. There were there were a lot of films growing up for me that I watched so much that I wore the VHS op copy out, and right. you know what I mean. Like it wouldn't work anymore. So like I had a few things that were just on repeat. This wasn't one of them, and I think that scene, and then I think some of the puppetry as like brilliant as it was in just in design just was like too creepy. Like, I don't know. There's something it hit that uncanny Valley. We talked about a little bit mm -hmm. last week, like just gave me the creeps and I just didn't want to look at it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think in particular, yeah. I think, uh, uh, Falcor's skin, he has like mm -hmm. this, like bumps on his back that would just like make my skin crawl. When I saw it, there's like certain weird things, um, that, that just, for whatever reason, I didn't like. And then, yeah, like watching the horse, like knowing you're going to have to watch a horse drown uh, is a very tough mm. thing for a 10-year-old me to be like, yeah, let's put that movie on again. Yeah, it's pretty skippable, in my opinion. Uh, once you've <laughs> seen it once, uh, it's pretty br pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so so uh, I assume you're going to tell me when we encounter any uh, scenes that Enda had a problem with, and I assume this isn't one of them because <laughs> he wrote it. No, in his not book. necessarily. Yeah, he wrote this portion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it mostly has to do with the end, so we can get okay. to that here in a second. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Morla, I thought Morla, the the puppetry for Morla the turtle looked incredible. It looked so good, and then climbing up on the back and coming off, and then the scale again, and then when the head comes out. And like yeah. it freaks out the kid and he screams. Manipulating a face to achieve a sneeze like that. Steven Spielberg was helped cut this movie together. Yeah. He had to have been inspired the, by the scene in Jurassic Park, right? I like, thought so too. I totally thought about had that. Had to be. Like it yeah. looks so similar. Like the the brontosaurus head or whatever is kind of like this big turtle head. And I I I don't know. There was so many similarities in that sneeze and the way it hits Artreyu. I was like, I, I wonder if this is a thing that he was sort of referencing or just inspired by it absolutely 100 percent has to be when i saw it in the movie i was like that seems very like very much like that scene from jurassic park and yeah. then i went and did the research and realized how involved spielberg was and i was like yeah. no way did he just think like oh yeah i just randomly thought of this sneezing scene that i thought would be really comedic and funny from a creature to a kid yeah no he totally was either stealing it or referencing it or whatever but, <laughs> yeah you know yeah 
that's very cool. That's very interesting. Cool. I'm sure. I'm sure Wolfgang Peterson doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, he probably probably is fine with it. And this is also the part where we get the introduction of Gmork with the sort of green glowing eyes in the darkness. Very scary looking, mm-hmm. you know, wolf. And uh, yeah, racing through the swamp, like you said, that scared you so So it's much. literally, it's the Artax followed by Gmork with the glowing eyes and then the POV running through the woods. And I was like, yeah, yeah fuck this. When I was a kid, and, I was and, like, then, and then, and then Falkor that. comes down out of the sky and rescues him the last second when he's about to have suffer the same fate as, as Artax uh, and then also get eaten by a wolf. I don't know. <laughs> um, pulls him out of the muck. Uh, Treyu gets so filthy in this movie. I kinda, It's, it's kind of awesome. Um, and then uh, he rides on the back of Falcor in this like soaring scene where he's flying through like real <laughs> images of landscapes. And again, it's like your imagination makes it this graceful thing that when you're actually looking at what's on screen, it's like very clear he's sitting on a big, you know, rig and just like over a green screen. Like you can tell what it is, but the effect works really well for the time. And um it did a good job of like making me the kid go like, oh my God, I wish I could ride on the back of Falcor. That'd be really cool. Yeah. To touch on sort of what, some of the stuff you're talking about, like the the way that Falcor interacts with the world, like there's a moment where he finds the, the medallion, uh, the Orin, and then there's also the moment when he's like picking, anytime he's like picking up uh, Atreyu, it's very much like there's like jump cuts in there. And then there's also like subtle dissolves and things to like try to make it look like he's doing things. But there's like, it's clear that like they were like and cut and put the scene of him in the hand and, you know, cut back to it or whatever, whatever they needed to do. Uh, And it's an interesting way to sort of get around it. But it is it is a moment where you can, you know, you could see how unrealistic it is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I mean, I, I forgive it. Falcor sounds like a stoner to me. He sounds like a straight up stoner. Like, oh, yeah. He's so like, whatever man you know yeah it'll be fine don't it's worry about it you all know? about like, luck man yeah like i, I it, the the personality and vibe of of falcor i thought was pretty comical in the yeah. movie different than the book um pretty fun though so i i believe the same voice actor as far as the english is concerned did rockbiter gamork and uh falcor wow okay yeah shows some cool range all some very different voices there, yeah, yeah. Oh, another thing that I meant to mention that's just like crazy references, which I actually went and looked at a picture and you can kind of make out some of this stuff, but people, you know, Reddit threads and things like that really picked it apart. Um, during the first ivory tower scene when Atreus, you know, just first being selected to go out there, there's all the different creatures, which oh, were yeah. really awesome. Looking. I wanted to mention how, how cool that was. Uh, the, all these like big headed guys in the background and just really, really interesting design. Yeah. Yeah, like people with like three different faces on one head and then like yeah. splitting faces. And I was really taken with just how inventive and creative the look was for every person's, you know, person in quotes, like standing around in the in the ivory yeah. tower. Well, speaking of which, in terms of character creations, uh, in that first ivory tower tower scene, when they're all gathered together, mm-hmm. if you look very closely, you can see characters such as Yoda, Mickey Mouse, Chewbacca, C-3PO, the Ewoks, E.T., and Gumby in the background. Wow. I yeah. didn't notice them, but now I kind of want to go back and pause and just... Yeah, check it, it out. It must People, just be like silhouettes or something. Kind right? of, yeah. And you can kind of... It doesn't... Obviously, it's not like a very clear Yoda Some or of it like might that, be like a... Yeah, seems... kind of a leap to say this is Yoda, <laughs> like I imagine. But I, I want to see some stills now. People do believe it, though. People yeah. do really think that like they threaded all of these in there. And, you know, I think there's a good argument for most of them in the, in the screenshots I saw. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and then we got to talk about the sphinxes before yeah. we move on. Just the, uh, I think a lot of that looked really cool. Uh, 
just massive you know they had to construct these pretty massive uh mm -hmm. sphinx and uh atreyu like going in through the doors and everything that's that's something that definitely stuck in my memory a lot when i yeah. thought about this movie i thought about the sphinxes and the way that they almost open their eyes but he gets away and he goes through the yeah. gate to the next gate and i just i love that stuff i thought it was really yeah. cool I, I think it's it's got it's got to be noted that there are very prominent breasts on these oh, sphinx yeah. Yes. And like I was like, why? And what is what is what is the decision? And 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 I think yeah, it's like is there Freudian stuff going on here? Is it like fear of women, <laughs> like or like the power of breasts on us? Or like I, I feel like there's like some subconscious shit going on there. Um, but also just on a surface level, it was like it was an interesting decision to put that in a, in a, in a sensibly a children's movie. Um, and and not to say like I'm a prude or anything, but I don't know. It's just it felt like the camera was like very clear about we're gonna look at them and, and yeah, yeah. Is it gratuitous? Is it weird? Kind is of it to, maybe. Is it to kind of titillate like the right. young audience to be like, ooh, that's something I'm not allowed to see? Like yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so the uh, something something interesting that you just nailed down though was that was one thing that Michael Enda hated. He, yeah. Mikel Enda, yeah, he he couldn't stand the fact that they decided to put like large breasts on these Sphinx. He was like, it makes it does it's so unnecessary and it doesn't f fit in this children's story at all. Okay, okay. I I mean, I guess I'm with him. I I can see it. I don't know if it's enough to make me want to remove my name from an adaptation, but I can yeah. see that. Yeah, because I I kind of agree. It was it felt like weird and like unnecessary and. Mm -hmm. Again, like it, you could do the same thing and just not put nipples on them, and then and then for yeah. whatever reason it seems more artistic or something. I don't know. Again, I'm not a prude, is <laughs> but it's just like it's a weird thing to be in this children's movie and it, have it be so prominent. Yeah, anyway. I don't know what Wolfgang Peterson. He really wanted to put those in there, though. Yeah, uh, apparently. Oh, so another couple of things that I that I haven't mentioned along the way. Like, can you uh, imagine if you saw a Pixar movie today and? <laughs> There was a big pair of CGI boobs on like some like fantasy esque creature, but it's very clearly human looking boobs. And yeah. they're just like, here we go. We're just going to put that on our Pixar film and show it to kids. It's artistic. Yeah. I mean, there would be such an know. outcry. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. it's whatever. It's like, I'm not, I'm not personally offended by it or anything. Yeah. But it's, it was a decision. <laughs> so, uh, Mikel Enda also absolutely hated the Falcor design. Hated that it looked like a dog. Wanted it to look like a dragon. Yeah, big floppy ears. Definitely yep. looked a lot less dragon-like. Sounded like a stoner. Wolfgang Peterson did not uh, like the comparison. He was like, we kind of did a little bit of dog stuff, but people call it like a flying dog, and that's not what it is. It's a dragon. And like he like... You put big he, dog ears on it, it's gonna... People are gonna call it a dog. Yeah, well, he doesn't like that. So yeah. there's there's that. So yeah, that's just another another little piece of the puzzle that Michael Enda... So, and, and overall... There's a, literally a moment where he's like scratching his ear very much like a dog. So yeah, I thought they were... I, I, I figured that was a very deliberate decision to make because... We all love dogs and, you know, a dog dragon gives a it, it's like a, a connect. I mean, like I read books about uh, Jane Yolen's uh, Dragon's Blood series it was like one of the first novels I ever checked out from the library myself. And uh, that's all about a boy who like raises a dragon from I think it's like hatching into like a full size thing and he rides on it and he, he like bonds with it. And my love of dogs absolutely translated into my love of dragons and like that 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 connection is there. So the idea of a dog dragon, I think is a really clever thing, but I still contend that some of the design 
was just off-putting to me and it still like <laughs> still felt felt weird he has like a bubbly skin at one point when they're looking at it and just throws it, ugh, it i don't know whatever reason it kind of creeps me out and then i don't know the, he has this wink he does which is weird like i don't know if you noticed like Falcor winks at him several times and I'm i like, saw it yeah why are we wink? i don't know I, I understand it's like they're probably very limited on what they could do but there's just something strange about this wink like i don't know yeah uh so Mikael and uh, we talked about a few of the things, but I think the main thing that was like sort of a bridge too far for him was the fact that they were only going to do half the story. Yeah. And that was such a yeah. big deal for him that 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 and then in addition to once he saw the half that they were covering and then the decisions that they were making, some of the yeah. things I've mentioned was not a fan of that. But there's one final thing uh, that I'll talk about after I read this last section. Okay. In flight, Atreyu is knocked from Falcor's back into the sea, losing the Oren in the process. He wakes on the shore of some ruins where he finds several murals depicting his adventure, including one of Gmork. Gmork then reveals himself and explains that Fantasia represents humanity's imagination and is thus without boundaries, while the nothing is a manifestation of the loss of hopes and dreams. Atreyu battles and kills Gmork as the nothing begins to consume the ruins. Falcor manages to retrieve the Oren and rescue Atreyu. The two find themselves in a void with only small fragments of Fantasia remaining. They spot the Empress's ivory tower among the fragments. Inside, Atreyu apologizes for failing the Empress, but she assures him that he has succeeded in bringing to her a human child who has been following his quest, Bastion. She further explains that just as Bastion is following Atreyu's story, others are following Bastion's, making this part of the never-ending story. As the nothing begins to consume the tower, the Empress explains that Bastion must call out her new name to save Fantasia. Bastion doesn't believe that he has been incorporated into the adventure and sees these events as just a story. He eventually gives in after the Empress pleads directly to Bastion to call out her new name. He runs to the window of the attic and calls out the name he has chosen. Bastion awakes with the Empress, who presents him with a grain of sand, the sole remnant of Fantasia. The Empress tells Bastion that he has the power to bring Fantasia back with his imagination. Bastion recreates Fantasia and flies on Falcor's back to see the land and its inhabitants restored. When Falcor asks what his next wish will be, Bastion brings Falcor to the real world to chase down the school bullies. In a cliffhanger ending, the film narrates that Bastion had many more wishes and adventures, but that's another story. And will be told at another time. I was like, "Where? why did you not finish the quote? Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, can, I, I have a guess as to what upset Enda. Um, the very ending where Falcor leaves Fan- Fantasia with uh, Bastion on his back and they chase the bullies and he jumps yeah. in the... the I mean, the dumpster, like, this is a complete departure from the book. Yeah, he fucking hated that. He did yeah. not like that at all. <laughs> I bet he really did. Um, I will say, as a kid watching it, I remember thinking how cool that would be, and it was sort of a wish-fulfillment idea of, like, being able to have a fantasy dragon and ride it around into our world. But uh, in, this, in, the, in the story that Enda wanted to tell, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't line up with what happened, so... I can see being really frustrated with it. It is kind of a weird, abrupt ending to this story, and it feels like there's, it does feel like there's more story to tell. Um, I guess it makes sense that they made sequels. Uh, let's back up a little bit before we talk. About, I want to, I do want to touch a little bit on like ending and like what maybe could have been done differently or or, or what they did do. But um, before we get past it, I want to back up a little bit and talk about some of the scenes you t- you you outlined there. Yeah, let's start with Gamork and uh, the way that. 
he's in the ruins and the yeah. ruins have depictions of this like prophecy that was yeah. always going to happen. And then and then he sees the wolf in the cave and then he looks over and it happens right then. I thought that was a, kind of a cool effect. Yeah. Um, a challenging him. He's like, if we're going to go out, we're going to go out fighting. And then, you know, again, we have to sort of imagine this battle as he jumps out and or, or this this action. And then uh, clearly he ends up stabbing him. I thought it was cool. And, and uh, the, the breakdown of like what Fantasia is does align pretty closely with how the book describes it. Um, you don't get as much depth, but that makes sense when you're when you're adapting. You're just not going to be able to have the, the time to have to explore uh, all of the same level of depth. Um, yeah, I thought that all worked. I liked I liked uh, Gamork. Uh, the design of him was was scary. Um, he was all beat up. And I felt like it was a weird choice to have him be all that all beat up and then not really describe why. Like he mm. had clearly he was like all I don't know. I wonder if that was a scene that got cut or something. But like he was all he was like bleeding and all messed up in that cave. And we didn't have any sort of indication as to why. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I know that there were a couple of things cut. Like like I said, Spielberg cut some stuff, but yeah. also. Uh, there were a couple scenes that were like in the screenplay that ended up not even being filmed. Mm. And, you know, maybe that had something to do with it as well. But it doesn't yeah. make sense to have it beat up if, if there never was a fight. It, well, in, in in the book, he's been trapped and there's like a princess or something. And it's, there's some sort of backstory as to why he is right. the way he is. But um, we don't get any of that here. While we're here talking about this fight uh, between Atreyu and Gamork, I did want to say that apparently Noah Hathaway had a really tough time on this film, the guy who played Atreyu. Uh-huh. Uh, he was hurt many times in the production of this film. Well, I kind of believe um, it. When he was learning to ride a horse, his horse threw him off and then stepped on him at one point. Ow. Uh, that's before the production of the film. Uh, while shooting the uh, sequence in this in the swamp of sadness with the horse his leg got caught on the elevator and he was pulled underwater and apparently he was unconscious by the time he was brought to the surface holy shit yeah and then uh during this fight scene he almost lost an eye one of the claws as the as the robot fell on him the, one of the claws poked him in the face like right next to his eye and apparently the robot was so heavy that he like lost his breath while it, when it hit him on the ground like he you know, got the wind knocked out of him and stuff uh Jesus. Uh, and so they only they only shot that one time. That was that one take because they didn't want him to get seriously injured. But I was thinking about a lot of this other stuff. There was a scene. There's the scene where you can tell that they have like a rotating set, and they when the when the wind is blowing really heavily, and they like strapped the camera down to the set as it rotated, and he it looked like he was like flop. The wind was pushing him completely sideways mm-hmm. as he's holding onto this tree. And I was just thinking, like, you can tell that it's him. He turns his face towards the camera at one yeah. point. And I was like, I mean, like, how far is this fall if yeah. he lets go of the tree? Doing, like, is he hopefully... He's doing all these stunts. It seemed he was, really... He kept getting it's... knocked off of shit and, like, having to take tumbles. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he probably had... They probably had stunt kids, I guess, but still. They definitely did. I have a couple, yeah. Like, you, there was one time for sure that I could tell that there was a stunt yeah. double in there. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. It seems... Like it was pretty rough. Well, and we talked uh, about in our uh, a bonus episode where we covered the Twilight Zone film, which would have been around this time. I'm not sure the exact year that one came out, but um, yeah, it was around this time. There was a horrific accident that resulted in the deaths of several children on the set of that. Yep. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking about how in the 80s uh, it was kind of the Wild West on movie sets, uh, where you know there was maybe some rules, but like thankfully it seems like people are a lot more careful these days and there's a lot more well there's like all kinds of codes and and laws uh, things that films have to abide by now yeah yeah 
uh, that were kind of like not really stated. It was kind of like uh, the moral thing to do was, you know, treat kids better than everybody else. But there wasn't like requirements. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So they have like authorities now, like code authorities that they have to abide by. But um, uh, something else that I was that I was hearing is that uh, Wolfgang Peterson was such a perfectionist, apparently, on this film and that he the budget considerably inflated. And that's what made it one of the most expensive German films of ever, uh, especially at this time. And then uh, reportedly some some of the time he pushed for up to 40 takes on each scene in the movie. Wow. Yeah. Which is just sounds be, absolutely brutal to me. It had to be maddening. Yeah, especially with some of the, how physical some of these scenes were. Uh, for And for like a Treyu who was in the majority of them. Yeah. It had to be yep. really tough. I think the main three actors that we got, Noah Hathaway, Barrett Oliver, and Tammy Strunach, uh, I thought that all of them were excellent, especially for their ages yeah. when this film was being made. Um, Barrett, who played Bastion, was really really relatable and had like a lot of emotion Mm -hmm. in his performance and in the cutaways back to the real world like it just it was very believable yeah and i thought that uh tammy uh tammy stronach uh just just her performance when she did show up as the empress was very like it was a performance well beyond her years i think she was like she was like 10 or something when they filmed it so it's like i i I totally agree um shout out to her actually she liked our tweet for our last episode I don't really? know if you know this. Yeah, I didn't know that. She, she liked our tweet uh, about the episode <laughs> out of the blue. That's awesome. That's uh, I, was, I went and looked, and she's like blue checked on on Twitter, and it's actually her. That's so I just awesome. thought that was cool. <laughs> very cool. Shout out to her. Seriously. Yeah. Um. Very neat. Uh. I, I do want to say like that that space scene is a, a big change from the book. I don't remember it looking like that, where they're sort of flying through an asteroid field, and then they find the sort of flying remnants of the of the ivory tower i thought it looked very cool and again it just reminds me of a very particular time in the 80s and like the way stuff looked uh it looked like something off of a poster very cool and then yeah you know shout out to every every performance i it also i i think the difference you can tell between like bastion and the bullies is pretty stark (laughs) like the level of acting like you know what i mean like the bullies i think were pretty pretty rough um you know not to completely shed on them but like it just you could just tell the difference right with with what they were able to get from the leads and 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 what they weren't weren't able to get from some of the others um yeah i mean i guess yeah what what else is there to talk about in this movie i think we talk about we we need to talk about the ending ending, like what you said yeah what, what they could have changed yeah so in the book if you didn't listen to our book episode bastion enters fantasia like he does here a little bit, but he, he, and he remakes Fantasia and then he gets the power to make wishes, which is touched on here. And that power goes to his head and he starts to become, he becomes the new emperor and he starts to forget his former life. And he has to be reminded of it in certain ways. Atreyu ends up saving him. Um, and the, Together, they he is able to find a way to re-enter our world, and he comes out as sort of like a changed person who is more able to accept his life in the way it is. He uh, is able to find a connection to his father, who was very distant and depressed. Um, feels like he finds a way to deal with the death of his mother, and he returns the book to Coriander. These are all things that don't occur in the film um do you think they could have done it 
in this movie. The movie was about an hour and a half. If you had another 30 minutes, could you have pulled off enough of this to make it work? I mean, genuinely, probably, but um, I think the thing that you risk is with a movie like this going two hours for a kid's movie, it starts to become a little excessive, but you know, maybe cutting some stuff earlier. Um, there's not a ton that I would like love to cut, but I'm sure there's some stuff that you could cut to try to try to get it around like an hour 45, hour 50. But specifically the scenes of like having gone through the journey, grown as a character and in the ways that like he's more confident, he brings that into the real world, eventually uh, having been humbled also by having that confidence go too far. And then returning the book, I feel like it's such a such a massive thing in the in the even in this movie he said i promise i'll bring it back with a note and it's like implied that he brings it back eventually maybe but but uh i would have liked to have at least seen some of that sort of wrap up where like he he we 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 should have gotten an indication that he became more confident and we kind of did but he's now like able to live in a fantasy world it seems like almost also so like if we had seen like he brought that into his into his own world had another conversation with his dad and then had another conversation at the bookshop with uh, coriander and sort of wrap it up in that way without maybe having to dig into all of what happens in the second half um, I would have liked to have seen some of that as well I think there's a way you could have done it with the caveat of this movie was already over budget and one of the most expensive ones ever made in Germany and probably was struggling to be made even as it currently is right so if you're adding 30 minutes to a movie or you're adding a significant amount of new scenes, new puppetry, new, just new everything and expense. And so I realize that there are real world limitations. But aside from that, I do think there was space to make this a little more similar to the book to add some of those moments at the end And I think the book itself, we talked about in our last episode, there's a lot that you can cut and still sort of get the gist of of Bastion's journey and the second half of that novel. And I, I do believe more could have been done to align it in that way. Now, if that's something Wolfbane Peterson just didn't want to do, like I understand you got two different people who have different visions and care about different things. I get mm-hmm. it, um, but I I tend to side with uh, and Anda and a little bit in the sense that I think the story is more resonant and has a stronger message and has a better character arc for Bastion with some semblance of the ending that he wrote intact. And instead, we don't really get any of that, and it does feel very much like a cliffhanger or like the movie just kind of ran out of time. And that's not really a great place to like end on so it's a miracle that it exists in its current form obviously especially with the impact that it had at the time that it came out um and we like both confess that in the book episode we felt like it really spun its wheels for a while and a lot of like unnecessary things were added in there but yeah finishing the arc it, i think i think would have been really nice um you know barring the fact that the budget they were way over budget already uh i don't know and part of me thinks like um it does get really kind of it, it, we talked about like the shift in tone that happens in the movies in the book as well and like to have to try to do that in the movie i think i can understand where peterson's coming from with needing to lop that off and kind of make this its its own self-contained thing um and clearly like people still reacted to it in in a way that i think enda wanted 
sort of like engaging the imagination and like understanding like the relationship between reader and and book and and that sort of thing so i don't know i i, I see the argument for it i don't think that it's necessary but uh, it would have been cool to see, you know, I would have loved to see Peterson continue out and, and finalize the, especially, like I said, the stuff that I, that, that I would have liked to have seen from this movie, another scene with the father and another scene with Coriander to sort of wrap those, those yeah. threads. So, so here's what I think it boils down to for me. The movie presents a story where Bastion enters this fantasy world that he's been engaging with throughout the entire film is able to ride a dragon into his world and scare the bullies who have been pestering him and to sort of get payback on the back of mm-hmm. a dragon. In the book, Bastion comes away from Fantastica having learned about himself in a way that gives him the inner strength to tackle the demons of the real world in a way that he was not equipped to do when he started reading the book. He he was changed by his experience in Fantastica and he came away with a new strength. And that is a more interesting and powerful message, I think, for readers and for viewers to take away of like the power of stories to to give us the strength to come into our real lives and tackle the problems we face. And the message of wouldn't it be cool to have a dragon and then you could chase down bullies is just not the same. I do think that there's a, there's room there to say like he took what was a an idea and then made it literal like yeah. he took something from that story brought it into the world literally to help him in his daily life like I think the messaging is still there it's just not as subtle as what like you know what you're saying yeah right like if they were trying to evoke that essence with the writing of of uh, Falcor into the real world like that's 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 like a metaphor for what you're saying what you're saying yeah I, I get it right um, a metaphor made literal yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. I could see that, but um, I guess I'm kind of with Onda here. I just wish they'd yeah. found a way to 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 make it equitable and make it so that he could be happy putting his name on this thing because it's a shame to see it yeah. without his name attached. I agree. With, yeah, I totally agree with that. It's a bummer. All right. Here we are at the end. You know what time it is. <laughs> we got to decide what the better version of this one is. We kind of just hashed it out a little bit. Do you want to go first? Yeah, but like I'll go first. But like I, I yeah. honestly... I don't know because there was so much filler and so much. Um, I, I, it's kind of a, it's kind of bad to call it filler. It's not really filler, but like there's a lot that happens in the book that doesn't feel super necessary. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, it, I felt like the book really dragged in the second half. Um, and the movie is this like stunning achievement in visual effects i think for the time it was a, a an awesome nostalgic ride for me to go back and view it so many great visuals so many great uh just moments in this um i'm really struggling to pick a favorite between the two i think both have significant flaws but both but both really um really achieve something cool uh i guess for me i'm going to give it to the book um because Enda's story as someone who, uh, you know, worked against the SS and um, grew up with this surrealist painter of a father who clearly he's emulating and his ideas and his design for his world. And then the meta textual narrative we get uh, with Bastion reading and the fact that I'm reading a book, I think it directly ties in in a way 
that just works a little bit better. And then I like the idea of seeing his his concepts fully realized and, and executed in a way that the film felt a little bit truncated. Um, all of that being said, the book does still have flaws like I've gone over. So it was close, but I'm going to yeah. I'm going to give it to the book personally. Yeah, um, honestly, it's a shame that Edna like sort of felt like he didn't want to be associated with the movie and, uh, you know, props to him for basically writing the entirety of what shows up in the film, even though it's only half of his vision. Um, and like those reasons are obviously like massive when, when thinking about these two in comparison to each other. But I'm going to be a little biased on this one because of the emotional impact, because of the time period that it came out, because of like what it's what it's become in the, the zeitgeist of, you know, all I think I think the world in general. Um, I'm going to take the, the movie because of the achievement that it was for the time and the performances and the set design and how memorable it is. And um, but, I, you know, can't be overstated how important Edna was to the process of this being made, even though he wanted to be separated from it eventually. Um, it's a, honestly the biggest shame of it all is that he it should be his legacy as well. You know, and it doesn't feel like he has that the attachment to it. People don't associate him with it as much. At least in our country. Uh, especially yeah. in America. Yeah. yeah, in America. Yeah, man, I'm glad. I think that's appropriate. Honestly, this is another one where it was so close. I'm glad one of us took each each version. Um, I, yeah. I, I think that's a good place. Uh, stick around to the end of the episode because we're going to announce our next project that was voted on by our patrons. And it may surprise you because it's something that is very uh, outside of our typical wheelhouse. Um, yeah, but I'm very excited to cover it. Yeah. As soon as we, it was decided for us, I was super stoked. Right, and we'll reveal that shortly. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and our coverage of the never-ending story in general, uh, let us know about it. You know, you can tweet at us. You can you can uh, comment on our Facebook page or what have you. But we would love to also uh, see a rating and review where you uh, maybe outline what you enjoyed about our coverage, that kind of thing. Um, that helps us get the word out and increase our rankings a little bit. And make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you used uh all those little metrical things that help uh like the video on youtube that kind of stuff <laughs> if you wanted to support this podcast maybe think about checking out our patreon it's patreon.com forward slash ink to film we have many different tiers but monthly for our, just our two dollar tier we put out bonus content uh usually adaptation adjacent and if you like never ending story you can be sure that we're going to do never ending story at some point in the near future never ending story two you mean yeah. yeah, we will be revisiting Neverending Story in a, in a sense. And there's, there's I think, two other movies, maybe even three other movies. Wow. So there's there's other stuff that we could dig into if we wanted to revisit this world if people are really interested in it. So yeah, yeah definitely check out our Patreon. We also have tiers for merch. We have t-shirts and all kinds of other stuff. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Patreon, we also just put out a new video on there, and it is us doing a tier ranking of all of the projects we covered in our third no, yeah, third season of our podcast. Um, a lot of fun doing that. Um, still getting used to the to the uh, process of recording video, um, but I think it turned out pretty well. Uh, I, I had a fun time with it. So if you're curious about that, check it out on Patreon. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Here we are at the end. Um, so uh, we recently had a poll. Started out on Facebook where people commented suggestions, and then I had people like 
the comments that that they agreed with essentially and that was just different suggestions for different projects we could do and then we took that to our patrons the top four results and we put a poll on there and we do this every quarter uh, to determine what our quarterly project would be. And the winner was Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and the 2005 film adaptation. Um, this is a novel that I've heard about so many times. It's beloved by mm-hmm. just so many people. I've never read it. I've never seen the movie. My wife, it's like one of her favorite movies. She's very excited that I'm finally going to be covering awesome. it. She's going to watch yeah. it with me. She already told me. Um, so I, you know, that should be really cool. Um, again, it's, it's just not something I've ever really delved into, but I'm interested. I know it takes place during the Regency era. It's got some very famous, uh, romantic, uh, plot lines in there that people reference a lot. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. like Mr. Darcy, I think is like in this one. I don't know. We'll see. We'll get into all of it. Uh, what do you have any, what do you think about it? I'm just excited because I, it's one of those that I feel like I need to read in order to like be engage with all different genre. Right. And, and it's one that I don't have a ton of experience in and covering something that's this massive that you hear people talk about all the time, like to have that blind spot, yeah. it just feels embarrassing at this point. So like to get a chance to cover it, yeah. uh, I'm so excited. And if you're like, like us, if this is not the kind of thing you ever read or know anything about, I think it's it, it should still be fun to check out the episode and just get a sense for like what we thought of it. Because yeah, we'll we'll give our general reaction at the, at the top of the episode and and let you know like what was it like going so far out our wheelhouse and and what were what were our takeaways. So if that sounds interesting to you, our next two weeks are going to be Pride and Prejudice. We're going to cover the book and then the film. Uh, should be a ton of fun, uh, and we hope you join us for that. But until next time, keep adapting.